Welcome to Club Management. My name is Shannon Dawson, and you can listen to the show on all your favorite streaming platforms like SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and the TuneIn app. Please, if you'd like to make a donation to the Club Management Patreon, you can at patreon.com slash clubmanagement1. And make sure you friend us on Instagram too. We're on there now. I don't know why I just made one now, but (laughs) uh, we're literally on there. So please add us as a friend at club underscore management. And this is episode 22. And we're still doing well and thriving despite the odds. I'm not going to lie. It's been a real mental battle to stay healthy and creative, especially during this time. But I want to thank you and to all of those people who've been tuning in. Super huge thank you to anyone who's come on the show and given me and the audience their time to tell stories of how they're impacting their communities through music and also their own personal journeys with their musical careers. I've been learning so much about how to navigate, not only as a DJ, but on a deeper level, how to navigate through my art without compromising my identity and my values. And that's something that I see many of the folks who come on this show do every day within their lives and their careers. And I think that's so huge. Um, And literally doing everything on their own terms. I think right now is an amazing time to literally take your career by your own hands and make it happen for yourself. Um, And the guest that we have today literally lives and embodies that entire ethos. I was lucky enough to snag an interview with Danny Deal, who's a killer DJ, producer, and writer for The Verge, where she talks about the intersection of music and technology. She's also the vice president of the Recording Academy Chicago chapter. I was so stoked when she said yes to come on the show because um, Chicago holds a really special place in my heart. Musically, it's such an historic city for house and techno with legends like the late Frankie Knuckles and Larry Hurd pioneering the sound out of the city. Um, and a lot of my passion for music really stemmed from spending my college years in Chicago, actually going to Smart Bar every other weekend. Danny's was a favorite of mine and uh, sneaking into Evil Olive every now and then for the legendary porn and chicken nights. <laughs> but I was super excited to find out about Danny's inspiration growing up in Chicago um, and how that's really fueled her to where she is now. She's literally organized her own headlining tours. She's opened up for some big names in EDM like Diplo and Steve Aoki. Um, And we had a chat about how she's really been able to take charge of all of the amazing things she's accomplished. Um, And we also had a chat about the music industry's really big issue with diversity, especially when it comes to inclusion of women, black and brown artists, and artists from the LGBTQ community, uh, and what she's doing to change that, because she's really been advocating for artists and speaking out really truthfully about some of the issues going on in the scene. And she gave us the scoop on a really little problem that's having a huge financial impact on artists, and it's called metadata, which if left unchecked can cause many artists to lose out on thousands of dollars. So check out our interview, I hope you enjoy. 
Let's talk a little bit about your music journey first, because you come from such an iconic place like Chicago that has like a legacy of incredible music and artists. Uh, And fun fact about me, I actually spent four years of my life in Chicago going to college at Columbia College. Um, oh. Yeah, so some of my first music experiences were in Chicago. Like, I can fondly remember sneaking into Evil Olive every Monday for Porn and Chicken, <laughs> <laughs> like going to Smart Bar and Danny's every other weekend. So I love it. Um, and that really was a place where I said to myself, I want to be a part of music. So I'm wondering, what are some of your earlier experiences with music? And how does that work in the context of all the amazing things you do now? Music was actually not a part of my household growing up. My parents, I don't think they'll be hurt by this, but they're not incredibly musical people. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't something that was prioritized. And I I fell into music really as a a result of a, a social thing that was going on in my life, or rather a lack of social uh connectivity Mm. in in high school i well back even before that backing up in grade school i was bullied uh all the way through eighth grade and then things didn't get much better when i was in high school and then when i was in high school i discovered graves Mm. and through that for the first time i felt in love with a community and i found a space where i felt like i belonged and i didn't have that before discovering these folks and and this type of music and so by by correlation i became a massive fan of the the music that brought all of these people together and and house music became my true first love Mm, and i really i identify with that too because like i'm still trying to find my voice and get a handle on how to navigate through the music industry as a up-and-coming dj um so to identify with that story of like feeling like you don't really fit in I know how that feels and to see someone like you that's an incredible DJ a producer uh, and now the vice president of the recording academy it lets me know that that is something that's that can be possible for me so thank you so much for just like taking the industry by your terms and your hands and and just living your life unapologetically I really that inspires me so much (laughs) oh good I and to preface that it I will say that didn't come instantly. It took a very, very long time for me to feel comfortable in being able to say the things that I do say online mm-hmm. and figure out what my points of view were and what my my ethos was. And, and I spent a very long time shoving all of that down because I was afraid of being blacklisted, blackballed, mm-hmm. being removed from potential opportunities. Uh, that that did silence me for a very long time as someone who was was trying to achieve a certain level of of power and leverage in the industry. Yeah, I mean, let's talk about that because this, especially during this pandemic, I feel like there's just been this ugly magnifying glass on the industry right now. And you have a lot of artists like yourself and others that are coming on Twitter and other platforms and saying, this industry has not, it's not been easy. Um, And I want to talk in particular about uh, a couple of cases that I saw on Twitter this week. Uh, Kevin Saunderson, for example, who did a crazy interview with Billboard saying that like, he still feels uh, disrespected in the industry. Um, 
But I mean, why? Why do you think that this keeps happening? Because it just seems crazy that like even people like Larry Heard or Robert Owens who say that like labels owe them money from years ago. Why? Mm-hmm. Why do you think that's happening now in 2020 still? I well, I think that's a very loaded question. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, are 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 we talking about the diversity issue or artists being taken advantage of by labels, which is specifically the Larry Heard Robert Owens? I would say the like artists being taken advantage of, but I feel like both play hand in hand. I think they they do, and also there's there's a Venn diagram there, mm-hmm. uh, and that's really because a lot of new artists, especially in in dance when they're coming up and they're signing contracts they're not going to Warner right they're going to indie labels and th- there's a greater chance of things slipping through the cracks and them not being educated enough on what their rights are knowing how to read a contract or knowing that there are free resources for them out there like the lawyers for the creative arts that will actually do things like that look over contracts for musicians pro bono Mm -hmm. uh there there was actually a, a paragraph from that that lawsuit the larry heard and robert owens lawsuit and for the folks that are not aware um this is a very big big piece of news here in chicago right now these are two legendary musicians that were foundational for house music and they're seeking legal legal action Mm -hmm. against a house label called tracks asking for um a million dollars in damages and there's there was one paragraph in that lawsuit i read the whole thing and it says, upon information and belief, Trax Records built its catalog by taking advantage of the unsophisticated but creative house music artists and songwriters by having them sign away their copyrights to their musical works for paltry amounts of money up front and promises of continued royalties throughout the life of copyrights. And I said, the most heartbreaking part of this lawsuit against Trax Records for unpaid royalties is that you can sub out Trax Records in this paragraph for any number of other labels and it would still be accurate. Mm. that's wild like that's Mm -hmm. oh my god that's insane um so i mean i can imagine being young and getting offered to be on any kind of label that you know obviously you don't necessarily think you might not be in the clearest state of mind to think about how to negotiate things for yourselves but would you say that it's still the is it the fault of the artist necessarily or like i i guess who not who's to blame yeah this is this is the the ongoing discussion is where does the responsibility lie for this education right because the only person that benefits from the extra work of the burden of education is the artist it's not to the benefit of the label and most instances is not to the benefit of the dsps it's not to the benefit of all of these entities that profit off of the work that the artist makes it's only to the benefit of the artist Mm. so all of these these support systems and frameworks that the artists rely on in order to get their music heard and to hopefully create and generate revenue they don't necessarily have the onus or the interest to create the best possible situation mm-hmm. for the artist. Right. Yeah, it's a, it's a really tricky one. And I want to move on to another really 
tricky situation that's happening in the industry that I don't think a lot of artists know about, which is metadata. And Mm -hmm. when I think about metadata, it seems like a pretty simple, you know, pretty simple thing to fix. Uh, But for the folks who don't know what that is, could you explain what metadata is and why it's so uh, important for artists to know this? Yeah, I think for... If I was going to break this down into layman's terms, we'll think about a song and then all of the relevant attributions that would make that thing easy to catalog and find. Mm -hmm. Sort of like how books are cataloged in a library. So metadata tags that would go along with a track might include the genre, the name of the primary artist, the names of the collaborators, the songwriter, um, perhaps the session musicians, if, if that was something that was involved. Uh, all, all of these, th- the track title, all of these things that help a DSP or any other place that is hosting the music to ingest it and to make sure that uh all of the signals point to the right people to make sure that when your track is played, then everybody involved gets the payment that they're due. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes total sense. Um, okay. And then, yeah, like reading your article, you were even saying that for one song, things could get particularly tricky because, again, you have to credit, you know, songwriters that are involved, other producers that may be involved. Um, so if you don't necessarily have everybody's info tagged under the metadata, someone mm-hmm. can get left out and could potentially get left out of paying tons and thousands of dollars, which is crazy. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's that's nuts. Like, why can't it easily be fixed? There's there's a number of reasons for that. One is there are just completely different laws when it it comes to mm-hmm. uh, copyright and uh, the systems are already in place in all these different territories around the world. Mm-hmm. So trying to uh, create a, a globalized system where you've already got countries over a hundred countries that all have unique and established systems of their own is a tremendous process to even try to comprehend from a macro level and and forget about even breaking down things like what about artists that have symbols what about um, trying to make sure that whatever system is in place can uh, tag an artist who's uh, American and using English versus one that's using Japanese Mm. or Arabic There's there's all of these different things that make it so that we have silos where things technically sort of work within these silos. (laughs) (laughs) And I I place a great hedge on that because there's still the silos themselves are broken. But when you're talking about the fact that there are these established silos all over the world, they're all trying to uh, make their systems internally work and they're not working and they're broken to think about combining all of them into one thing is just a a tremendous, uh, it makes my brain explode. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely sounds complicated. Um, In the case of the story that you were talking about in your article, Um, It just seemed really unfair that even after they noticed that this glitch even happened, they still didn't want to pay the artist that was missing out on tons of money, Um, 
which I think mm-hmm. is really unfair. So in your opinion, what are like, how can an artist protect themselves from mm-hmm. this happening? Yeah. So actually, so what you're referring to is the, there was a, a, a particular artist that I use as a, a sort of a, to put a human face on the metadata story mm-hmm. because he had missed out on, an estimation of $40,000 worth of money because there was a glitch in transferring his credits between different Piero databases. And he could have recouped that money if he had caught it within a certain window. So most Piero's will fix back payments if you catch it within whatever window of time they've set. Mm -hmm. So you can't, if you caught it within three months, maybe you could recoup that missing money. But if you caught it a year later, depending on the PRO, you might not be able to recoup all that money. So it just depends. He caught it too late. Um, I would say that artists should know that they can they can audit their PRO. They can ask for statements to don't just assume that everything is going through the system right. as it should. I think artists should also know, like I mentioned before, that there are resources like Lawyers for the Creative Arts so that if you do have questions or if you want to know uh, how you can best protect yourself, there are lawyers available that will give you that advice and help you pro bono. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they they're really they're amazing. Um, and then just educate yourself. There's um, Ari's Take. Let me see if I can find the website. But Ari is an independent musician mm-hmm. and he has a wonderful website called Ari's mm-hmm. and it has really good resources about all of the things that artists should make sure that they have in place and all the places that they should be registered in order to make sure that they're getting the money that they're doing. Nothing's left on the table, like making sure you're set up with Harry Fox and Sound Exchange and all of these things that most artists are probably like, what? I've never heard of that. But they actually play a very <laughs> important role in scooping all of those fractions of pennies off the table that do add up to significant sums for some over periods of time. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for that. Um, and I, from reading your bio and listening to your music and everything that you do, you have really been um, like a key force in saying that you can do all of this yourself from self-producing, curating your own shows, booking your own headlining tour, which you've done. Um, could you tell us a little bit about like, like how did you get that courage to just start doing things on your own? What was the easy part? What were some of the hard parts in really taking charge mm-hmm. of your own career? I I wouldn't call it courage. I would say that I'm very good at translating frustration and anger into actionable items. Mm. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I love that. That's a really good one. (laughs) And so that, that was really the impetus for me trying to do, well, not trying to do, I did uh, my own headlining tour. Uh, I will also say that I would not do that again because the amount of work that was involved was just incredible incredible and there were a lot of obstacles that uh i just did not anticipate Mm -hmm. we i mean we did the thing we broke even at the end which i consider a tremendous success um it was was, that was the best case scenario to me but but yeah the amount it was so emotionally draining to be the person that was performing every night and also the person that was 
in charge of making sure that the logistics were all there, mm-hmm. uh, that I was in charge of a team. We had a, a merch person with us, a tour manager. Uh, you know, I was in charge of, of these people. Oh and, and it, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't all five-star hotels and, um, and fancy dinners. There, there were times where we crashed on couches and, yeah. uh, and, one time slept on a floor. (laughs) (laughs) I always, so like I've been, um, I've been organizing my own tours. So just a little bit backstory about me before I came back to New York because of the pandemic, I was in China, like DJing, throwing, curating my own events. And I would negotiate everything too. And I'd always have a friend in like Shanghai and be like, can I please sleep on your couch? Or like, I don't mm-hmm. know, in Beijing and say, Hey, I'll pay you a couple dollars. Can I sleep in the bed with you or something? <laughs> just so mm-hmm. I wouldn't have to pay that extra cost of hotel fees and all that. So yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's important. Um, um, I wonder though, with the and I, I hate to keep going back to all the ugly stuff that's been said in the industry, um, but I wanted to get your take as a woman. There is a lot of things that we often have to deal with, um, and I'm wondering if, in any moment, do you ever feel like when you sit down at these tables to negotiate? Um, and really vouch for what you feel you deserve as an artist. Do you ever feel like you still get those cringy moments of like? you don't deserve to be here or we're not going to pay you what you think you're worth or do you ever still feel those feelings with all the accomplishments? I don't, you don't? really. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, I, can I swear on this? Of course. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> I, I gave away all my fucks when it came to asking for money years ago. Wow. And, and that's, it, it's incredibly freeing. Mm-hmm. Um, honestly, the, the, the worst thing that can happen if you give somebody a number is they say no, mm-hmm. and then you just counter back and you find an agreeable middle ground. Right. And if the offer is is too low, then I'm very comfortable walking away and saying, you know what, I don't know that it's worth my time to go through it for X amount of dollars because it's not just the hour that you spend on stage, right? It's all mm-hmm. the preparation. I mean, you know, we've got to get ready. Like I've got flat iron my hair. I got to do full <laughs> face. I got to get to the event. I got to do sound check. Right. It's an evening, right? I mean, you, ultimately you're paying for an hour of my time, but there's so much work leads up to that hour of time. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, it's definitely true. Mm-hmm. So in your opinion, Okay, I'm a, I'm a still a baby DJ, and this is something I mm-hmm. get uncomfortable with sometimes when I go into these rooms, predominantly with men, and I'm just like, you know, how do I negotiate properly? What are some tips that you can give? Um, and this just doesn't have to be exclusively to women. It could be to any, any artist of any background. But um, if they're new on the scene, what are some things that they should go into these rooms feeling confident um, on how to mm-hmm. negotiate with? I think you should always keep in mind the the person that's on the other side of the table mm. because a lot of folks come in and actually I got text on on my uh, my community app from somebody that was asking about this how do I approach local clubs about DJing right, right now um, I'm an up-and-coming artist and unfortunately in that situation my advice was, don't do it because <laughs> I don't think we should be doing IRL events right now. Right. <laughs> but this is definitely, this is a question that a lot of people have is especially when you're starting out, how do you 
how do you approach the negotiating table when the person that's on the other side likely already has a lot of established relationships with people that they know are reliable and can call on, mm -hmm. right? Um, so you have to, it's not just about pitching yourself. It's about how are you going to position this so that the other side sees that there is value in the two of you coming together. Mm. So instead of just making it a one-sided conversation and saying, I have X amount of streams, this is my bio, here's the tracks that I've done, I want X amount of money. Mm. That doesn't give the promoter any reason to book you at all. Mm. You have to be considerate about what their needs are right? Um, maybe they have slower nights that they're trying to build. Mm -hmm. And that's an opportunity where you could say, uh, you know, I think I could, if you want to test things out, um, and your Tuesdays are slow, but you're open, maybe th this is a really good opportunity for us to see if there is some synergy in us working together. Mm -hmm. um, or see, you know, what are do you even know what the promoter's goals are? Do you know what the venue's goals are? What type of person are they trying to bring in? Like you've got to show some interest in the other side when you're discussing things and show that you're not just trying to pitch yourself, you're trying to pitch a relationship. Mm, I love that. Um, obviously right now it's been tough because nightlife is just completely on a hold uh, mm -hmm. with this pandemic, just really, yeah, causing places to kind of yeah go away it seems um but i want to talk about some ways that artists can generate income especially now we're seeing a huge influx of uh live you know live dj sets via twitch and facebook instagram mm -hmm. um and now instagram i was reading from one of your articles is going to start allowing artists to sell merchandise via the app which mm -hmm. i think is cool what are your thoughts on that I think it's it's long overdue mm. and it's it's the perfect time to debut something like this. Right. It's it's great. You do I you do have to have a business account or a creator account. I personally have a creator account. Mm. I prefer that. Um, you do lose some functionality when you switch over to a business account. Mm. And and I like that with a creator account I can also tag what sort of creator I am. So it says on my profile musician. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, we need all of these different avenues to start creating additional revenue streams. And a lot of people are finding that it's difficult because they are having to migrate to platforms that are completely new. So you're building up fan bases in completely new places, which right. is a heavy investment of time. Mm -hmm. So for a platform like Instagram to debut a feature that is baked into a platform where artists already have an established fan base, that's massive because that requires so little lift on the artist in order to capitalize on that and create additional income. Yeah. Also, uh, I don't know if Twitch and Bands in Town are still doing it, but I think they're offering, are they still offering affiliate uh, status if you wanted to go on and possibly monetize your live stream DJ sets or is that not? Still That's a great question. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure, but I, yeah, I do know that a couple of months ago, I, I would be pressed to say that they had stopped that because I know it was very successful for them, mm -hmm. but they were offering 
a system where you filled out a form and this is through bands in town you needed to have a minimum of 2000 trackers or you could do it through soundcloud if you had a pro account mm. so both companies had a partnership with twitch and all you have to do is fill out the form you send it in uh, supposedly a human at twitch will see it within <laughs> five business days and then uh you get to bypass a lot of the restrictions uh, that are in place and you can have affiliate status instantly which can be a big deal for people that want to reposition themselves and put a lot more effort into building their twitch presence because affiliate means that you unlock a whole bunch of monetization tools that means that people can give you tips while you're streaming it means that you can put a subscription gate on uh your channel so there's all these different ways that you can monetize awesome um and wrapping up here what are some stuff that you've been working on um you know with the pandemic causing a lot of time for us to kind of reassess and think about how we want to come out of this in the future um what what are you cooking up i've literally been cooking so (laughs) that's awesome oh yeah i did see that on your instagram you were making bread and some other goodies in the kitchen yeah (laughs) it's been incredibly cathartic i i've always loved baking anyway but i i find that doing things where i work with my hands is is just a good stress reliever for me when I have too much going on in my brain. So I literally have been have been cooking and baking. Uh, but in terms of, of music, I haven't. I truthfully, like many of my peers, I've not been inspired to work on music. Mm-hmm. But I've been channeling a lot of my efforts into uh, other places where I feel like my talents can be useful so i threw two festivals with bands in town called network Mm -hmm. and the whole point of the festival is to have a very beautiful robust diverse lineup that does not include cisgender white men and so we've done two of those the second one outperformed the first one by double the unique viewership. We had over 160,000 unique viewers and it beat out every other live stream festival that was happening that day on Twitch, which was amazing. Like, I just love that there's this concrete proof that people want to hear and look at diverse lineups and listen to things that are different from the same 30 tracks that they hear every freaking week if they were going to festivals in real life yeah yeah and this is i mean this is it's crazy how you know the the black lives matter movement and everything that's been going on during this pandemic has really also caused a lot of these big festivals and music companies to shift the way that they think um and i i thank you so much for doing that because it's definitely needed and there's also been a lot of talk about how when live performance does kind of pick up how can we start to see that diversity and inclusion on these lineups because it's a really long overdue um, mm-hmm. I know some artists are talking about adding a clause in their writers to see, uh, you know, to include diverse lineups. But I feel like it should be more than that. You know, I feel like. Yeah, it's it's difficult because where where does where's the most impact held? Do we hold the promoters accountable and right. the festivals accountable or do we have the artists take some sort of a social pledge mm-hmm. it's it's it, it's interesting and i i'm actually talking with hero bust about this he approached me because uh 
bless his heart, that man <laughs> is such an ally to everyone right now. And mm. he he was the one that brought up the idea of a social contract and was like, how can we do this, Danny? I really feel like it's important. I want to make sure that this diversity sticks around mm -hmm. and I'm worried that it's going to go away. Right. Uh, so we, first of all, we need, we need more hero busts in the scene. <laughs> <laughs> thinking about this. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I look to models that have been done already in Europe. Mm -hmm. There are, there are a couple of initiatives that have been done with European festivals where they've taken a pledge to have 50-50 parity with gender mm. on their lineups by a certain year. And I forget what that benchmark is, but it's been working in certain countries overseas. We just haven't had anything like that here. And I do think that some sort of concerted effort is is needed because I'm seeing some festivals already slip back into old mm. booking habits. Um, <clears throat> awakenings. This is unfortunate. Sorry? <laughs> I was going to say <clears throat> awakenings. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, you said it, not me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, that wasn't nice. But yeah, you know what? I but, definitely. But yeah, but, yeah di diversity for uh, diversity for the sake of wanting to i just oh, how do i say this mm. per performative activism is mm. something i have a problem with right if if you're going to say that you stand for something and you create a change and that change lapses once it's out of the public eye then you were never for that change to be with mm. so yeah. i know that i'm going to be watching a lot of these companies very closely. And I know a lot of artists are going to be watching these companies very closely mm -hmm. over the next few months. Um, and hopefully people will still rally to hold them accountable if, if they do not continue to make the effort uh, to diversify the types of people that we're listening to and, and we're seeing on live streams. I love um, that. Yeah. But, but yeah, I, whether in terms of how to hold people accountable, that's something that I'm still uh, grappling with. But I do like the idea of some sort of a social contract. I'm just not sure where it would be most effective in terms of the artists or the people that are throwing the events. Yeah, I really, I hope to, I hope this incites some change and that it doesn't fall by the wayside when we do open up. So we'll we'll keep a close eye as well. Um, if folks want to listen to your music and just follow you, where do they find you? I am so easy to find everywhere. <laughs> Literally, it's my name, Danny Deal, on all the things from SoundCloud to TikTok to Twitter to Instagram. Yeah. It's it's an it's incredibly easy. You have like no excuse. You can follow me on <laughs> Twitch too, Danny Deal on Twitch. And then I also do have a community phone number, which I'm very very active with, um, and I use that to text with people one on one and. I, I don't use it for like tons of promo. I think that's really icky. I use it as a place, like a safe space for people if they want to text me to get advice or to just vent or chat or share memes with me. Um, so people can reach me there at 312-847-2506. Building money.
coming out of the interview with me and Danny Deal and please make sure you follow her on all her social media platforms literally it's like she said it's easy to find her at Danny Deal D A N I D E A H L um and she's incredible listen to her music um i suggest if you are new to the industry like myself actually because there's so much that i'm learning and because there's so much that i'm even learning and uncovering i would suggest you follow her because she's always giving out some real good game on how to take your career into your own hands and how to like stay knowledgeable and especially when it comes to laws and you know how to protect your music and rightfully get paid for your art and craft so follow her she's always giving out those gems on twitter uh, the verge and her various uh, social media platforms um and thank you this has been episode 22 i'm so excited because after a long just kind of like mental pause i feel like uh, me taking a break has opened up a whole realm of possibility and a lot of i have a lot of really great interviews coming out in the next couple of weeks um so stay tuned stay locked hopefully the space serves as um something knowledgeable and really valuable for you to just learn about music learn about issues going on in our communities um and how to stay involved how to help within the change too um and yeah that metadata story man it gets me every time to think about something so simple as crediting everybody on a piece of work you know that means like writing the title everybody that's involved in the production process if someone's name is left out of that they can be left out of being paid money um which is unfair and it's important that we stay up to date so we know how to make sure everybody gets paid for their art especially in a time like this where we can't fool around with money man every penny and every dollar counts so make sure you you get on that if you have some tracks that you haven't really been uh you know um if you have some tracks that you need to go back to just to check and make sure that you're getting all the money from whatever streaming platform you're hosting your content on make sure you do that that's important um and yeah that's it for episode 22 please make sure to follow me on twitter and instagram at shannon one dj um i've got some more exciting content coming up and follow us the club management instagram at club c-l-u-b underscore management um i'm going to be slowly but surely posting content up on there as well uh forgive me (laughs) there may be some weeks where it's a bit stagnant because i'm literally uh doing all this by myself but we're going to keep it going slow and steady wins the race so look out for some content on that page as well uh i love you if you'd like to donate again to the patreon community please do patreon.com slash club management one until next time